0: Welcome to Crypto Voices. Here we bring source commentary off the written page. Research and opinions from experts and enthusiasts focusing on longer-term trends in blockchain tech, decentralization, entrepreneurship, cryptography, and freedom. Coming up, it's Technical Commentary, covering continuing technical features and debates over blockchain security, protocol design, scaling, smart contracts, and network effects. Bitcoin Explained Like your 5, Part 3, Cryptography, by Chris Pasia, 7th of September, 2013. The price of Bitcoin at the time of writing was $124. Since my last posts explaining how Bitcoin works were a bit of a success, I figured I would continue the series. So far we've discussed Bitcoin mining, the incentives, and the cryptography used in the protocol. However, I glossed over a key element in the Bitcoin ecosystem, digital signatures. This was partly because my goal in the previous posts was only to introduce you to mining, but also because digital signatures are important enough that they deserve their own post. If you're reading this, I'm going to assume you have limited knowledge of cryptography. So, instead of jumping right into digital signatures, I'm going to start by providing a broad introduction to cryptography. Hopefully you'll learn not just how bitcoin works, but also how to stay safe on the internet by keeping your private information away from prying eyes. The Basics There are two types of cryptography in this world. Cryptography that will stop your kid's sister from reading your files and cryptography that will stop major governments from reading your files. Quote by Bruce Schneier Obviously, we're going to concern ourselves with the latter. Cryptography is the science of using mathematics to encrypt and decrypt data, so that we can either store it or transmit it to someone, so that only the intended recipient can read it. In practice, we take plain text, the unencrypted data, and encrypt it using a cipher, a mathematical algorithm used to securely encrypt and decrypt data, to produce a cipher text, unreadable encrypted data. In conventional cryptography, the same key is used to both encrypt and decrypt the data. This practice is called symmetric key cryptography. One of the earliest and most well-known ciphers was a Caesar's cipher, used by Julius Caesar to protect his military correspondence. This particular cipher was a substitution cipher, Each letter in the message was substituted with the letter that was three spaces to the left in the alphabet The key in this case was simply to shift to the right by three Caesar ciphers were even used by the Russians in World War one after their troops failed to master more complicated ciphers German and Austrian cryptanalysts had no trouble cracking it. However, Another popular cipher was Little Orphan Annie's decoder ring. Today, the most widely used symmetric key cipher is the Advanced Encryption Standard, or AES. AES was established in 2001 by the U.S. government's National Institute of Standards and Technology after it held an open competition to create a replacement for the cracked Data Encryption Standard, or DES. 15 designs were submitted by cryptographers from around the world. The list was narrowed down to five finalists Raindall, Serpent, Twofish, RC6, and Mars. Ultimately, Raindall, developed by two Belgian cryptographers, was selected as the cipher for AES. The AES algorithm is part of the public domain. That means that it's not only free for anyone to use but also it has undergone an enormous amount of cryptanalysis. As of today, there are no known feasible attacks. The NSA has even approved AES for use in the encryption of top-secret classified information. You can take that as a bit of a vote of confidence. You can find various implementations of AES to use for encrypting your files simply by Googling around. It should be noted that Given enough time, any cipher can be broken by a brute force attack. A brute force attack is where an attacker tries to decrypt the data simply by trying different keys over and over again. However, the time it takes to execute such an attack increases exponentially as the length of the key increases. To date, the largest key found with a brute force attack was a 64-bit RC5 key. Finding it took a total of 331,252 computers and over 1,757 days. The three versions of AES use keys of 128 bits, 192 bits, and 256 bits. Well out of range of any brute force attack. In fact, If every one of the 7 billion people on Earth had 10 computers testing 1 billion key combinations per second, it would take the entire population 77 septillion years, that's 77 with 24 zeros behind it, years, to find a single 128-bit AES key. What about quantum computers? Could they brute force an AES key? Well, I'm not an expert, but from what I've read, quantum computing would likely double the size of a key that could be effectively brute forced. That might cause AES-128 to fall, but AES-192 and AES-256 should still be safe. Needless to say, if you're going to crack AES, a brute force isn't going to do it you're going to have to find some kind of weakness in the algorithm. How about the NSA and its $52.9 billion black budget? What are the chances that it's had some sort of cryptographic breakthrough that the public or academia is currently unaware of? Well, it's plausible, but it's unlikely that such a breakthrough would allow them to actually view the plain text. When DES was broken, The best attack didn't reveal the plain text, it just shortened the effective strength of the encryption key by about 17 bits, making it easier to brute force. Even then, the attack required something like 70 terabytes of ciphertext to analyze. You're not going to get that much ciphertext from an average user. So, to the extent that the NSA does have a crack of AES that nobody knows about, it's unlikely it will actually allow them to decrypt anything. Most of their time is likely spent finding bugs in AES implementations, bad passwords, or performing traffic analysis. The fact that they pressured companies like Google, Apple, Microsoft, etc. into giving them backdoors into their systems is prima facie evidence that they can't break modern commercial encryption systems. Encrypting communications While symmetric key encryption works well for encrypting data on your computer or on a server It isn't that great for communication Since it uses the same key for both encryption and decryption Two parties that wish to communicate with each other need some way to agree on a key Obviously the whole reason you are encrypting your communications to begin with is that you don't believe your communication channel is secure You just can't send an encryption key in an email or text or phone call since it will be intercepted Short of meeting in person it can be difficult for two parties to securely share an encryption key Imagine the plight of Edward Snowden Trying to send top secret files to Glenn Greenwald without having previously shared an encryption key Now there does exist a method for securely communicating an encryption key called Diffie-Hellman key exchange. This method allows users to communicate over an insecure channel to establish a shared secret. The picture in the article provides a nice visual about how it works. Of course, in the real world, the exchange is done with math rather than gallons of paint. Key exchange works well enough, but there are a couple inconveniences. First, You have to take extra precaution to make sure you are establishing a shared secret with the person you actually want to communicate with and not some spook posing as the other party. Second, you both have to sign online at the same time so there can be a handshake. This is fine if you are communicating in a real-time chat. In fact, the popular off-the-record messaging protocol uses this practice. For sending an encrypted email, say, that someone can decrypt and read at their own convenience, it doesn't work so well. Public key cryptography Public key cryptography represents an advance over symmetric key cryptography as far as communications are concerned. Instead of using a single key for both encryption and decryption, separate keys are used for both. A user generates a pair of keys that are mathematically linked to each other. One key, the public key, is used for encryption and the other, the private key, is used for decryption. The algorithm is designed in such a way that it is infeasible for an attacker to derive the private key from a given public key. Using this scheme, a person can share his public key usually by posting it on a key server or a website, and anyone can download it and use it to encrypt files to send to him. Once encrypted, they can only be decrypted with the corresponding private key. The most popular implementation of public key encryption is Pretty Good Privacy, or PGP, and its free open-source counterpart, the GNU Privacy Guard, or GPG you can download a Windows version of the Cleopatra GUI here linked in the article. A PGP public key will look something like the long string of text that the author has posted in the article. That's my public key, by the way. Feel free to test it out by encrypting something and sending it to me. There is also a PGP plugin for Mozilla's Thunderbird email client, That is a great way to combine the benefits of public key encryption with ordinary email. Of course, your metadata, your email address and who you're sending the email to isn't hidden. Only the body of the email will be encrypted. Now, if you stuck around this far, you're probably asking, what does all this have to do with Bitcoin? Digital signatures. Public key cryptography has a second benefit beyond just the encryption and decryption of data. It can be used to create something called a digital signature, which can be used to simultaneously provide authentication, data integrity, and non-repudiation, all of which are critical to Bitcoin's operation. A digital signature is generated by combining a user's private key with the data he wishes to sign in a mathematical algorithm. Once the data is signed, the corresponding public key can be used to verify that the signature is valid. The following is what a signed message looks like in PGP. Notice the digital signature attached to the bottom. See the author's example of a PGP signed message in the article which has a PGP signed message with 133 characters of text signing the message. Now, one of the features of a digital signature is that the signed data is actually an integral part of the signature. If the data, the message in this case, is altered in even the slightest way, the signature will show as invalid when checked. This feature allows for the secure transfer of data while ensuring that nobody can just take the signature and attach it to another file in an attempt to forge a signature. Let's return to Edward Snowden. Suppose he were to send the top secret files to Glenn Greenwald, but the NSA were to intercept them. They might want to remove the classified information from the files and replace it with disinformation before forwarding them along to Greenwald. However, if they did this it would invalidate the digital signature. Upon checking the signature Greenwald would see that it doesn't match the public key Snowden provided him with. This is how digital signatures are used in Bitcoin. When your wallet creates a new Bitcoin address what it is really doing is creating a new public private key pair using the elliptic curve digital signature algorithm, or EC DSA. The public key is hashed several times until it looks like the familiar Bitcoin address. For example, 16 UW ll nine R ISC three QF VK. OFHMBQ7WMTJVM In GeekSpeak, a Bitcoin address is technically a base-58 encoded ripe MD-160 hash of a SHA-256 hash of 256-bit public key of an elliptic curve digital signature algorithm key pair concatenated with a checksum. If you haven't read part 2 where I discussed hash functions, all you need to know is that the public key is run through a number of algorithms until a bitcoin address spits out the other side. The private key is stored in your wallet and needs to be kept safe for reasons you will see in a second. Before I continue, let me mention that many beginners have an image of a bitcoin as some kind of digital file that gets transferred from one person to another. That's not really how it works. Bitcoins are nothing more than a balance in the public ledger, the blockchain. If you want to figure out how many bitcoins you have in your wallet, you can just scan the blockchain and record all the inflows and outflows from your address, then simply subtract the outflows from the inflows. That's it. That's really all a bitcoin is, just the balance in a ledger. When you make a transaction, all you are doing is telling the rest of the users in the network to add a transaction to the ledger, transferring n number of bitcoins from address 1 to address 2. This effectively just reduces your balance in the ledger while increasing the other person's. This is really no different than how a check works at your bank. When you write a check to someone, your bank just simply goes into its records and reduces the balance in your account while increasing the balance in the check recipient's account. The only difference is that Bitcoin's ledger is public and an electronic transaction performs the same functions as a check. So, when you create a transaction, it is signed with your private key before it is broadcast to the rest of the network. The peers in the network that receive the transactions will then check the digital signature to verify that it matches the public key of the address from which the bitcoins are being sent. If it does, the transaction is considered valid and it is relayed to other peers, ultimately ending up in the blockchain. Obviously, only the person in possession of the matching private key could have produced a valid signature. If someone were to try to create a bogus transaction, sending funds from an address they don't own, the signature will show as invalid, and the transactions will be rejected. If a malicious peer were to try to alter your transaction by, say, removing the output address and substituting one of their own, or by changing the amount sent, this would also invalidate the signature. Remember, a property of digital signatures is that if the signed message is altered in the slightest way, it will invalidate the signature. And of course, digital signatures also make Bitcoin transactions, or any other data signed with a digital signature, non-repudiable. Once you sign something, you can't later claim that you didn't, since you are the only one in possession of the key. Of course, If your key gets lost or stolen, then you will lose your bitcoins. So, to sum up, digital signatures are the key ingredient in bitcoin that allows only the owner of a particular bitcoin address and no one else to publish a transaction to the blockchain, transferring bitcoins from that address to another. Okay, that wraps up part 3. Hope it was worth your while reading to the end. If you think this post will be of use to others, feel free to share.